0: All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on 1 Peter. In this recording, we are going to be looking at some of the tricky bits out of the trickiest passage in the letter of 1 Peter. That passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And this is a great example of the kind of stuff that uh, there'll be more material on inside the study hub. I'm actually going to take a bunch of the stuff that I talk about here, write it up in a full more complete sort of way and I'll add that to the study hub as soon as I can. And so if you haven't checked out the study hub I've been mentioning it, but it is uh, a place where I'm trying to bring together a bunch of useful Bible study resources uh, just to help you have a central location, a hub if you will, to to learn Live and to share the Bible with others. So you can check that out. I'll put a link down in the notes below. But if you just go to the listenerscommentary.com, up in the upper right, you'll see a little thing that says Study Hub where you can click sign up and then you can sign up from there. And I'll add what we talk about in this recording um, in more detail into the Study Hub as soon as I can. All right, so let's jump in and take a look at this. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Uh, just some of the really difficult things that show up here. And in our last recording, we showed how this passage is part of the preceding context. In fact, it actually begins with the word because, and the reason is because Peter is grounding uh, the pattern of doing good and trusting God while suffering in the example of Jesus. So in verses 18 through 22, Peter points out that Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation to glory is the pattern of and the basis for our salvation and our deliverance. And so this section is really giving the reason why it's better for us to suffer for doing good rather than for doing bad. Um, That's its logical function here in the, the paragraph of which it's a part. The question is, as we noted at the end of our last recording, well, what's the reason? Why is it better to suffer for doing good than bad? And what Peter says in essence is that the suffering of Christ led to victory and therefore our suffering with Christ leads to our deliverance and victory as well. So if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we're in good company, and Jesus' suffering is what brought about salvation and culminated in his victory. So we can be assured that if we suffer with him and for his sake, that's the pathway to our victory as well. So that's what I said seems to be the point of verses 18 through 22 in context. But what Peter says here turns out to be the trickiest passage in the entire letter. And so, as I promised, let's explore some of those tricky bits in detail. So, first, we want to talk about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Then we'll talk, uh, we'll talk a little bit about what he says about baptism here, All right, So, those are the two big chunks of this recording. So, let's start with what Peter says about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. He says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, probably all people, maybe all time, but once for all, meaning he didn't have to do it multiple times, uh, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And it's that last phrase we want to pay attention to here, this put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Put to death in the flesh means his physical death. Um, made alive in the spirit is referring to his resurrection. Uh, and now, can we say more about it than that? Um, the phrase in the spirit in some translations is rendered by the spirit, that he's put to death in the flesh, but made alive alive by the Spirit. Again, literally, it's in the Spirit in Greek, but sometimes the Greek word in uh, means with or means by. So some translations render it here, by the Spirit. And that is grammatically and linguistically certainly possible. Some even, then, in commenting on it, compare it to Romans chapter 8 and say, well, see, it's the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. But that's a, a not a good reading of Romans Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11 actually says, God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. So it, it reads like this. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, right? And so it's actually talking about him who raised Jesus from the dead. The Father did so. Um, and so the spirit didn't raise Jesus from the dead. Um, and so, it's probably not best to actually see this as by the Spirit made alive or resurrected by the Spirit is probably not the best understanding. Probably, what he means by put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit is simply to refer to the in the Spirit refers to sort of the spiritual life of the resurrection. That's really how Paul contrasts the natural body of the flesh and the resurrection body of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15. There's the fleshly body, um, that is fleshly life, and then there's the spiritual body that has resurrection life. And it's a similar contrast to what seems to be what Peter is getting at here. The exact same phrase of in the flesh and in the Spirit is actually used in the very next paragraph in 1 Peter. And there, it seems to refer to physical death, and spiritual resurrection life. So that's how I think we should understand what Peter is saying here about Jesus. He died a physical death, but he rose with spiritual resurrection life. All right, now, that's not the most tricky part. That's a little tricky, but here's where things get really tricky in verse 19. After saying that, Peter then writes this. He says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Well, this raises all sorts of questions for us. What does in which mean? What does it refer to? Who are the spirits in prison? When was this proclamation made? What was the proclamation? Those are sort of the main questions here in verses 19 through 20. And there have been a variety of answers to those questions that really boil down to about three sort of main ways these two verses have been understood. So let me summarize the three main ways, and then I'm going to share after that what I think and why I think that, all right? So the first way these, this, um, these two verses have been understood was actually made popular by Augustine, and it's this, that what we're talking about is... Nothing that Jesus himself did. What we're talking about is the Spirit of Jesus, i.e., the Holy Spirit, preaching through Noah to the unrighteous generation around Noah while Noah was building the ark. And so the Spirit of God inspiring Noah to preach a message to the surrounding world about what was going on in his day. That's one way to understand it. And as I said, uh, that view was actually made popular in the early church by Augustine himself. So the idea is that Noah was preaching to the disobedient people of his day, who are referred to as the spirits here in 1 Peter. Now, I've read this, uh, the reasons for it and the explanations for it. It just doesn't seem like the most straightforward reading of the text to me. Uh, But that's one view. Another view is this, that uh, somewhere between Jesus' death and resurrection, or maybe possibly after his resurrection, Jesus went to Hades and proclaimed or made some sort of proclamation to humans in Hades. Maybe it was Old Testament saints and he was proclaiming the gospel to them and inviting them to come out of Hades, or maybe it was making a proclamation to the wicked dead from Noah's day and, and either giving them a chance to repent or declaring that their judgment is just, but it's Jesus um, somewhere in his post-resurrection or pre-resurrection state making a proclamation to dead humans in Hades. So that's another view. And then a third view is that uh, by virtue of his resurrection, Jesus proclaimed his victory uh, over evil, demonic, uh, dark spirits who were active in Noah's day. I tend to think this third view is the what Peter has in mind and what his original audience would have understood Peter to be saying. All right, that's so I'm somewhere in this third view at this point of time as I've wrestled with all the different reasons for understanding this text. So let's explore this third view via the various questions I listed above, the in which and who are the spirits and all that. Let's explore the views this way. So in which, um, what does that refer to? Well, it clearly refers back to the preceding phrase, which is in the spirit which is referring to Jesus's resurrection, that he was made alive in the spirit with resurrection or spiritual life. As I said, I think it means best there. And so, and certainly you get this whole section ending with the resurrection and exaltation in verse 22. Um, And so it seems to me to be completely out of step with the progress or the flow of Peter's thought to say that this proclamation was something that Noah did way back in his day. And that's why I just think it is isn't the most straightforward reading of the text. What's more important is that Peter seems to use this particular phrase, in which, throughout his letter, in sort of a really broad generic sense. Something like, in which state, or in the course of which. You can see other places Peter has used it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, or just below this in uh, 1 Peter 4, 4, he seems to use it pretty generally. And so I think it's probably generally used here. In other words, what he says is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, bodily death, made alive in the spirit, spiritual life by virtue of the resurrection, and in which, meaning in this state, in the state of resurrection, in the state of spiritual resurrection life. I think that's what it means. So that Jesus, by virtue of resurrection life and resurrection power, made some sort of proclamation. That's what I think we got going on there. So it's clearly referring back to, though, the resurrection that's referred to in uh, verse 18. Now, who are the spirits that are in prison? Well, both The first view and the second view that I mentioned above, uh, Noah doing the preaching or Jesus proclaiming to Old Testament saints or the wicked dead from Noah's day, both those views take the word spirits to refer to human beings who are now dead. So they were human when whatever happened, but now they are dead. Here's the problem with that. The word spirit in the New Testament virtually always refers to uh, angels or demons or God's spirit. It never refers to the human spirit, except in one case. And in that one case, it's clearly modified to make sure we know that it's referring to that. That one case is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, where it refers to the spirits of just men now made perfect. And there it's referring to dead humans. That's the only place in the New Testament where the word spirit um, refers to dead human beings. In Peter's day and age, the word was regularly used for the spiritual realm, the spiritual world, the spirits all around them, most of whom they viewed they needed to placate or in some way manage to be on good terms with them. And so... Uh, It just seems like the best understanding in the way the word is used throughout the Bible and the way the word was being used in Peter's original context to be talking about spiritual beings, and in this case, the way it's worded here, spiritual beings who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And if that's the case, then perhaps we're talking about the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 that really sets up the story Uh, of Noah and all of that. In fact, in popular Jewish thought, although there's some debate among scholars today whether those sons of God refer to angels or whatnot, in the Jewish thought of uh, first century world, the the thinking of Peter's day, they regularly viewed the sons of God there as uh, fallen angels who stepped out of bounds in some way with the daughters of men. Um, you can read about this for example, in the book of First Enoch where it talks about angels. These are among the stars of heaven, which was a way to refer to angels that have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and are bound in this dark place. It's really similar to what Peter says in second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 when Peter referring to these very very same time period in Genesis chapter 6 says, For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, held for judgment, and he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the ungodly. And so there's that connection of Noah and these fallen angels as well. And so that's probably the most likely meaning here of the spirits in prison. They are... The fallen angels that Peter is describing then in 2 Peter chapter 4, who are kept in prison. They're kept in pits of darkness. They are held in judgment, right? That's probably what the same thing Peter has in mind here by the spirit. So who are the spirits? I think the best understanding in view of everything we see in the New Testament, in the broader Jewish world and Greco-Roman world, to see it as referring to fallen angels probably the fallen angels that were involved in Genesis chapter 6. Well, what was the proclamation then? Well, that's probably the easiest one. The proclamation is a proclamation of victory. That Jesus is declaring his victory over these evil spirits, that he has triumphed over them. That they unleashed their most wicked uh, the most wickedness they could on him at the cross and Jesus rose victorious over them. Um, Jesus was exalted as, to the highest place as the whole passage ends, that he's now over them, exalted above them. And as verse 22 makes clear, he reigns supreme over all of them. And so the proclamation is a proclamation of victory. And you can find parallels to this elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle Paul writes, Speaking of Jesus, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so Jesus' resurrection is a declaration of triumph. It's a victory parade, a victory celebration over dark spiritual powers. When was this proclamation made? Again, this is one of the easier things. Notice the flow of the passage, death in the flesh, Resurrection made alive in the Spirit, and then he went and made proclamation. And so, if you just follow the flow, the proclamation was made after the resurrection. Maybe we could even say by virtue of his resurrection and consequent ascension or exaltation. That's a victory display. I am victorious over all of you. I have ascended to the highest heavens as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is where the passage ends passage ends with Jesus at God's right hand, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So here's what I think the best understanding of this text is. I think it's that Peter is saying that through his death, resurrection, ascension and exaltation, Jesus proclaimed his victory over the dark powers that seek to destroy God's people. Jesus now reigns as king supreme over them. They are defeated enemies. And so even though they may be at work in inspiring the opposition and hostility that God's people experience in the world, we don't need to fear them because Jesus has triumphed over them. All right, that's the the main tricky part of this text. Um, Hopefully what I said was, helpful a little bit. Like I said, I'll put a little bit more in the study hub where you could at least kind of read along and sometimes just seeing it and thinking it through might be a little bit more helpful. So I'll add uh, a little bit more detail there. It's going to probably take me a little bit to get it all written up. So be patient with me, but I'll get some of that more into the study hub. But even though that's the main tricky bit, there is also the bit about baptism that needs some explanation as well. So look what he says about that. Following uh, what he says about speaking to the spiritual powers and proclaiming victory over them and all of that. He mentions Noah and God bringing people safely through that. And so he says, um, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through the water. And then he says, verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Peter says, I'm sure you heard it in the middle of that about baptism. He says, Baptism now saves you. And sometimes to our modern ears, this sounds Wrong. It's just, no, how can you say that, Peter? It sounds like a very surprising and almost mistaken statement. And so the first clarification is to recognize that for Peter and the early church, that statement, baptism now saves you, actually made perfect sense. How so? Well, Jesus had commissioned the apostles, Peter standing there, right? Jesus had commissioned them to go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded them. That's Jesus' parting words to them in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. So that's what they were commissioned to do, just to make disciples. How do you do that, Jesus? Well, you baptize them and then you teach them to obey. Well, as you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. As you read through the book of Acts, when people come to faith in Jesus in Acts, they are baptized. They are baptized right away on the same day. So they move from outside of Christ to into Christ. And that movement was embodied in baptism. And that baptism happened immediately. There was no delay as there typically is in our day and age. Well, because of that, when you read the New Testament letters written to churches, right, and you hear them talk about baptism, it's always connected with conversion and entering into Christ. Why? Because that was sort of their experience. A person came to faith in Jesus. Oh, we should take you to some water and baptize you. And it happened on the same day. So they just write assuming that it was just their normal experience. And so you can get, for example, even like Romans chapter 6, that says quite a bit about baptism there at the beginning. Uh, Paul had never been to Rome yet when he wrote that letter. He didn't start the church in Rome, but he just assumes they've all been baptized because it was the normal way it worked in the early church. So because Jesus told them to make disciples baptizing them, and that's what they did, it was just simply their experience to get baptized right away when they came to faith in Jesus. And so it made perfect sense to talk about it in connection with entering into Christ, in connection with becoming a new creation in Christ, in connection with putting on Christ, in connection with being spiritually resurrected from the dead in connection with salvation, as it is here. It just made perfect sense for them because it was all packaged together in their experience of coming to faith in Jesus. They just had none of the post-Reformation qualms about using that kind of language. So that's why Peter can say what he says here as starkly as he does. But Peter doesn't think that baptism automatically or magically saves you. Um... It was just part of the entire kind of like group of things that were involved in putting your faith in Jesus, right? Like you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sins, you enter into Christ. These are various expressions that are used in Acts and throughout the New Testament for coming to faith in Jesus. And for Peter, baptism was just part of that package, but baptism didn't automatically and magically save you. And Peter actually makes some important clarifications here. So let's just reflect a little bit more on what Peter says. He draws a comparison between the flood story, which is found in Genesis 6 through 9, and baptism. Just as Noah and his family were saved through water, Peter says here, so now baptism saves you. People have wondered then exactly in what way was Noah and his family saved through water. Um, This seems to be part of really an overall Old Testament kind of motif or pattern. Noah and his family were delivered from the evil world of their day and ushered into a new creation, a new world through the water of the flood. We actually see this same motif or same pattern at various points throughout the Old Testament story. Um, For example, originally creation itself came out of the waters. Um, We see it with Noah and his family, right? Like they were saved from the old creation is going to be destroyed into a new creation through water. Israel fleeing Egypt is brought to safety through the waters of the Red Sea. Israel entering into the promised land through the waters of the Jordan River. There's just this pattern throughout the scriptures of water uh, being the means through which God's people move to enter into new realities. So Peter says, just as Noah and his family were delivered from judgment and saved through water, so now baptism saves you. It's like the culmination of the pattern and is the entryway into a a new humanity and a new creation. Then Peter says that baptism saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And Scholars have wrestled with the meaning of the word translated appeal here, because this is the only place this particular form of this word is used in the New Testament. It's used here as a noun. Now, the verb shows up tons, but uh, the noun only shows up at this point in the New Testament. And so you'll see some variety in the translations. For example, the NIV translates the word as pledge. One of the problems for it meaning pledge, however, is that the evidence for the word being used that way comes much later after the time period of the New Testament. And besides that, the the idea of viewing baptism as like a pledge to keep a good conscience seems, at least to me, seems out of step with New Testament theology. Like, if we're going to take baptism as this pledge that I'm going to keep a good conscience, that makes it seem like I'm doing something. I'm, I'm, I'm promising, right? And that seems just contrary to the doctrine of grace. Even though this word is the, uh, only uses a noun here in the New Testament, the verb is very common. And the basic meaning of the, the verb is to ask, to request, to appeal. And I just think that makes a whole lot better sense of the verse and of the experience of baptism to me. It, it fits in better, actually, with New Testament theology. It, it's the idea of asking or appealing uh, to God for a good conscience. That, that's grace. Like, like if, if, if this is what you want me to do, God, then I will, I will go get baptized and I'll call out to you to wash me clean and give me a good conscience because I know, right? Like, we're not even the one doing it. Someone is laying us down in water. So I see the idea of appeal just fits so much more beautifully with salvation by grace than the idea of a pledge. And so both linguistically and theologically, I think appeal is the proper understanding of the word here. We don't come to baptism promising to live uh, a good conscience before God. Instead, we come to baptism begging God to give us a good conscience. In fact, that's what Ananias actually instructed the apostle Paul to do at his baptism in Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16. To call on the name of the Lord, right? And wash away your sins. I think that's what baptism really is getting at. That's what Peter is saying here. So we come to baptism um, and we appeal to God for a good conscience. And notice that Peter says that baptism isn't just the removal of dirt from the body. Um, It's not the water itself, in other words, that does anything. It's this appeal that has any power, and the power of that appeal isn't even in the water or the baptism or the faith of the person doing the baptizing or being baptized. The power is in the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that. He says, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus. Our appeal for a good conscience only has any hope of a positive answer because Jesus rose from the dead. Thus, in baptism, we're calling on and trusting in the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead to save us and to give us new life. And so, in baptism, we embody the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it saves us because Jesus himself rose from the dead. So, baptism itself doesn't save automatically, it doesn't save magically. The water has no magical power or anything like that, right? There's nothing mystical or magical about the act or the water. It's powerful because it's an embodiment and an identification with Jesus and his resurrection. So we come calling out to God for a clean conscience, asking him to wash us clean. We trust in the risen Jesus. We trust in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And thus, we are saved. And so... As a result of that, we are now identified with Jesus, and he's the risen Lord of the universe. And even the dark powers in context of 1 Peter 3 are subjugated under his feet. And so in the context of the overall paragraph here, that means that we, we need not to fear those who threaten us or who oppose us or who ridicules us because of our allegiance to Jesus. No, Jesus is the king. And we can set him apart as Lord and he will be our refuge. He will be our sanctuary. He will be the one who delivers us ultimately because he's the victorious king. And that's ultimately what this section of 1 Peter chapter 3 is really all about.